This is an Audio Wool original. This episode of Fright Day is brought to you by Drinks of Hell Chipotle Hot Sauce by Fright Day. Bold Chipotle flavor blended with habanero peppers for just the right burn. Kissed with garlic and passion fruit. Zero human blood, like none at all. Visit shop.frightday.com before the first batch disappears. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com slash frightday. I'm your host, Byron. In the early 1990s were a much simpler time. Compact discs were spinning, man-eater Jeffrey Dahmer found himself locked behind prison bars, Bush Sr. and Boris Yeltsin wrapped up that whole Cold War thing for good, and Tim the Toolman Taylor was roughing like a dog and hurting on TV. Journalism was journalism, and scripted fiction was obvious. Or was it? Tonight we'll talk about two televised examples that caused confusion and varying levels of chaos. It's Ghostwatch and Alien Autopsy in this special Panic Fest edition of Fright Day. I'm joined tonight by Kelly. Hello. And Sam can't make it because he's making sure his VCR properly records the latest episode of X-Files. Oh, thank goodness. Panic Fest, we are back, baby. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To leave in medium room for uh, uproarious uh, applause. Uh, thanks so much, Tim and the gang, for asking us to participate again. And thank- oh, I thought you were talking about Tim the Toolman Taylor. And <laughs> I was like, please, no more. <laughs> we can thank Tim the Toolman Triple T, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, thank you uh, for listening to this, taking time out of your panic fest to spend with us. It's good to see you again. Well, they can't. I can see them. That's sca- I can see everything. That's horrifying. I've been working really hard on that. You know, uh, well, Fright Day, that's us. For the uninitiated, Fright Day is a podcast that started back in 2015, where each week we pair a new horror release, usually more on the independent side, but we sometimes slip into mainstream horror as well. We pair our review with a sometimes related topic, high strangeness, the paranormal, cryptids, and conspiracies from a rational, non-destructive approach, of course. That's all Kelly stuff. Yeah. I, on the other hand, like to dive deep into... Sometimes we debunk crazy things, too. Don't forget that. Well, yeah, of course. I'm the real things guy, the murder and mayhem true crime stories that you may not have heard before. Folks like Nathaniel Barjona. A real piece of shit that hunted little boys just a few miles from where I'm here. No, I don't want to hear about him anymore. I'm just plugging it. I know. I did a four-part series about him that's available now. We've got hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Evergreen stuff. No need to listen in order. So feel free to jump in to whatever topic interests you most. Maybe skip his and listen to mine. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, Kelly's in the middle of a real thick series on the Montauk Project. Whew. Having a lot of fun there. Am I? I don't I'm know. starting to feel like you. Well, I mean, have you cracked your teeth yet? You, my, honestly, I think there's a hole in my mouth guard. Not great. Is there anything you want to share, Kelly, about the general show before we jump in? I think it's a whole lot of fun. 
and it's evolved over the years and we really try to beware of those crazy evil conspiracy theories <laughs> that can send our country further into a pandemic and really there's something for everyone wow. i would say i would agree mostly my stuff is for everyone That's okay but all right panic fest 2021 we broke down the powerful history of the war of the worlds Several situations centered around the adapted works of H.G. Wells that stirred people into a frenzy with horrific results. So this year, we thought it would be fun to talk something a bit more contemporary to television broadcast events a couple years in an ocean apart that left viewers frozen on their couches, shocked by what they'd witnessed through the glass of their TVs. And if we're going to tell the stories chronologically, I guess I should go first. Yes, I think we should. Also, mine's happy. <laughs> okay, so. it's a little bit lighter. Yeah. On the night of October 31st, 1992, my then six-year-old self shed the papier-mâché Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shell that I had been carrying all night. After counting and cataloging my bounty of bite-sized confections, I likely passed out without brushing my teeth in time for my parents to enjoy 10,000 Maniacs performance on SNL. But earlier, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, an impressive 11 million people had turned their dials to BBC One the program you're about to watch is a unique live investigation of the supernatural. A program that warned it might include content that some could find disturbing. That program was Ghost Watch. Hosted by Michael Parkinson, a familiar and welcome face, Michael got his start as a reporter on 24 Hours and came to prominence as the host of the British chat show Parkinson. I wonder if British chat shows are more fun than American ones. Of I was thinking they are. about that. Like, I wonder if I would have watched more. If you would have caught me on a different week. Uh, I just wrapped up that Jimmy Savile documentary on Netflix. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to hold it against BBC today. From the studio, he described a residence that purportedly had been experiencing paranormal activity for over 10 months. No creaking gates, no gothic towers, no shutter windows. Yet for the past 10 months, this house has been the focus of an astonishing barrage of supernatural activity. A clip of footage shot by parapsychologists from a university hooked viewers immediately. Let's see what you think. The broadcast showed two young girls in their beds, awoken from their slumber by pipes banging, escalating to items being thrown, sheets being ripped off them, and finally the bulb of a bedside lamp exploding as they retreated from the room. This was all within the first two minutes of the program. It was good television. It was, and uh, Haunt fans or Warren heads might find this familiar. Of course, this story... Warren heads? That's not a real thing. I just came up with it. Uh, it the okay. story is heavily inspired by the Enfield Poltergeist case of the late 70s, which we covered in our show on episode 40, made further famous when featured in The Conjuring 2, which we also covered in our show in episode 77. But moving forward, you need to remember... 
This was a time before debating the validity of hauntings on YouTube, years before the Blair Witch Project, or the concept of found footage as we know it today. Byron, honestly, this comes into mind as well. Just people believed things. I saw an interesting commentary on the idea that, you know, nowadays people don't believe anything. They didn't have a reason not to. Right. We've got deep fakes. We've got Alex Jones telling us that there are crisis actors. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, nobody believes anything. No. But back then, it was kind of like the end of the era of peak gullibility, I would say. Skepticism of what you were watching wasn't really considered. And although Ghostwatch had been advertised... On Saturday night, we'll be visiting the most haunted house in Britain. But will the ghosts be there? And slotted as a drama on the schedule, even announced as such before the program started... Now on BBC One, Screen One presents an unusual and sometimes disturbing film marking Halloween. Using the modern idiom of the outside broadcast, Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green, Mike Smith and Craig Charles star in Ghost Watch. Not everyone knew that this was a film and not a live broadcast, and that would prove to be a problem. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to walk through the plot of Ghost Watch. It's one of those I, I really think you should experience blind. It's a, it's a magical film that I try to rewatch and evangelize to folks every Halloween season. But I, I'll give you the broad strokes. Over the course of the next hour and a half, Michael Parkinson from the studio talks with parapsychologist Dr. Lynn Pascor. Uh, Mike Smith is managing the phone lines, and his real-life wife, Sarah Green, who was a recognizable personality like Michael Parkinson, she had a, a pretty successful career in children's programming at the BBC. And toys and hats. We've got a quick... Um tongue twister this morning from Katie Stone who's nine and a half and comes from uh, South Milford in Leeds and uh, she said I thought you might like this tongue twister for Frog Corner. Here we go. Freddy Frog favors French fries flavors. If Freddy Frog favors French fry flavors, which are the flavors Freddy Frog favors? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even more reality credibility. She's at the early home at Fox Hill Drive in Northolt with Craig Charles, who was an actor on a popular sci-fi comedy series at the time called Red Dwarf. Crichton, what are you doing, man? I've just repaired the toaster, sir. Well, I've nearly repaired the toaster. Oh, no, man. Dismantle him. You don't know what a little bleed is like. Well, I've read all the She and him both interviewed neighbors as well as Pam Early and her daughters. As the program moves forward, the audience learns more about the early hauntings and a ghost named Pipes after the banging sounds they make. Could have been more creative with the ghost. I like Pipes. I think it's good. I've heard some people call him Mr. Pipes. You know, it, it's, it's, it, I, it's, a, it's a fine name, Kelly. All right. Unexplained disappearances of children in the area, bodies of dead dogs. But one of the most genius elements of Ghostwatch was something that might have been the step too far. Just uh, actually hearing in my earpiece that uh, Mike Smith has some news. Mike, what's happening? Thanks very much. Thank, thank you. Um, I've, uh, I've got eight or nine phone calls here, which are like Emma Stableford's we had earlier on. They, too, have seen a mysterious dark figure in the background of that shot in the children's bedroom. Michael? Dark, mysterious figure, Doctor. Have we got that sequence ready yet? Can yes, sir. Yeah, I think we can. I think we can see it right now. Let's roll the tape. There you are, <clears throat> up there on the screen. That's the tape you wanted, isn't uh, it? I can't sleep. Turn the light off. Mum said if you don't. Right. All right. Now, this is the point where Emma Stapleford, our caller, says she could identify that dark, mysterious figure in the, in the corner of the room. Don't say anything myself, do you? 
Can we rewind it? Sure. Yeah, let's rewind it. Can we play it, it again? Yeah. Can we play it back, BTR? There you are. Back a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah. Uh -huh. Can we go forward slowly? Sure, sure. Yeah. I'm doing that now. Oh. Mm. That's still enough? Uh-huh. I can't see anything now myself. False alarm? Throughout the broadcast, viewers started seeing the obscured, shadowy, skull-headed presence of pipes. Moments that when the host rewound the tape were seemingly mundane. There was no pipes to be seen. Really smart way to make the audience question the existence of ghosts and maybe their sanity. It's fun. It's a really interesting concept. Show something and then when they play it back, it's not there. You're like, did I see that? It, I agree. Yeah, it leaves you participating. But Ghostwatch wasn't going to leave you hanging, having witnessed this paranormal event alone. Right, this part of the studio is your part of the studio this evening because this is the phone number we'd like you to call us on. You can now see our Ghostwatch team are here, ready to take your calls. We particularly want to hear from you if you've had any personal experiences of ghosts or the supernatural. Call us now. Viewers were urged to call a phone number shown on the screen repeatedly to report if they had seen anything extraordinary or uh, share their own personal experiences. But Mike Smith and a team of operators, they weren't fielding calls as advertised. This was, of course, a pre-recorded feature. And actually, at the time of air, a handful of the cast and crew were having dinner and drinks, celebrating the completion, broadcast, and pending oh, success yeah, of writer Stephen Volk's project. One whose scares ramp up substantially, eventually climaxing in utter chaos, far darker and more violent than exploding light bulbs and still-standing apparitions. This, this could be Originally this planned as a six-part, more traditional series, producer Ruth Baumgartner didn't believe it had commercial viability. They decided uh, to move forward with a more clever and ambitious concept of creating the fake live investigation, which was more like jumping into the series finale. Oddly enough, one of the last films that Ruth produced, Kelly, uh, was simply titled Byron. No way. He's back in uh, 2003. Serial killer? No, he's just uh, some guy and no. not the Lord either. No. Uh, it was Ruth who was going to poop the party. Pale, she entered, sharing that the Ghost Watch reaction had gotten a bit out of hand. Uh, the phone number repeatedly displayed on screen was supposed to play a recorded message that led with, this is not real, explaining to those who hadn't heard the initial message that the film was indeed just that, fiction and in good fun. Unfortunately, the volume of people who called in, ranging from reports of 20,000 to a million, caused the BBC switchboard to overload. The intended message couldn't get out. And everyone involved was pretty well fucked. Even though, like with The War of the Worlds, there were numerous other times that this was advertised as fiction, and a message did play after the credits, reassuring viewers. It is, of course, Halloween, and if you were with us for our ghost watch earlier, may I reassure you that it was just a story, and all's well here at Television Centre. Halloween continues on BBC Two now, where the marathon Vault of Horror is now showing Stephen King's Creep Show. The damage was done. From uh, the most respected newspaper in the UK, of course, The Sun, viewers blast BBC sick ghost hoax, families in fear. A Halloween spoof was branded highly dangerous by psychologists last night after leaving TV viewers petrified. A few days later, they also wrote, the BBC kicked themselves in the ghoulies with their Halloween hoax <laughs> ghost watch. 
<laughs> yeah. The reaction of those upset varied dramatically, uh, ranging from terrified children, women startled into labor, which seems like a favor, right? You've been a very pregnant woman a couple times. Unless it's too early. Well, of course. You don't want it too early. Uh, yeah, but I mean, a Halloween baby's kind of fun. Uh, general feelings oh, of Lord. being duped. Even uh, Michael Parkinson's mother thought it was a real-life event. One woman sent in a letter asking for compensation to buy new trousers for her husband as he had soiled the ones that he was wearing. What a British letter to get, right? That is actually, I would say that's a distinctly non-British letter. I mean, an American version would be Discussing like... Discussing soiled trousers? An American version would be like, you made my husband shit his pants. Okay, that's true. But the public wanted to vent. So several weeks later on Bite Back, a program where members of the public could yell about other programs they didn't like... <laughs> Kind of an interesting concept for a show. I love that country. Maybe we never should have become our own country. You know that? Well, we should have just stuck with them. Think how much cooler we'd sound right now. Well, our judges would still have white wigs, and that would be kind of cool. And the baby powder lawsuit would be way bigger. Oh, man. I mean, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Producer Ruth Baumgarten and executive producer Richard Brooke, they got called wankers for a bit. Hello, and welcome to Bite Back, the program in which you, the viewer, take the program makers to task. And there are hundreds of you who want to do exactly that following Halloween night, when the BBC pretended to investigate the supernatural in Ghostwatch. Firstly, I must just say... Uh, the kind word is that it was actually theoretically a brilliant piece of television. That's the nice part out of the way. But I also think that you betrayed the trust that the audience has within the BBC. You toyed with the emotions of the audience because the audience weren't actually sure, or I wasn't, actually sure if it was fact or fiction, if it was live or if it was in fact a drama. There were allusions before the programme and in some of the papers, I don't get the Radio Times, many people don't either, I hate to say, that it was, you weren't sure because it was Michael Parkinson and the others, whether it was fact or fiction. And as the programme went on, it became obvious you were getting sucked in, in addition to which... Well, hang on, you made so a lot of points there, and I'm sure other people want to make some as well, and I want some answers, but let me bring in Susie Dixon over there, because you watched it with your two small sons, yes? Yes, that's right. I was actually under no illusion at all that it was a spoof. I read as many reviews as I could, and um, we actually built our Saturday night with the children around watching it. But I... your son was upset? Yes. Within five minutes, nothing had happened. He reacted instantly... He was very distressed instantly to something very sinister in the presentation and nothing had actually happened. And I think you mentioned that you were anxious to put it against uh, the ghost story, against a contemporary background. I think it's that actually that made it most sinister. It was the background that most people in this country live in. I didn't know it was a drama. I've got three children of 14, 12 and 10 and Michael Parkinson is a well-respected and mature fatherly figure. Sarah Green and Mike Smith are synonymous with children's television. Yeah. I looked at the start of it, vetted it and thought, and they weren't unsupervised, they were, they were watching it with my mother-in-law and I, I just thought that it, it was going to be a very safe... And were they frightened? Well, yes, I mean, to, to the degree that I agree that nothing seems to happen for 40 minutes but... I was working with my wife in another room and my youngest child, who was 10, rushed out of the room, vomited in the hall, um, was absolutely ashen-faced, wouldn't even talk about the thing for two or three hours. It was at one o'clock in the morning. 
that I got her to talk about it. And she, wouldn't, she wouldn't sleep in her own bed for two nights. What about you now, you three girls on the front? Natasha, McPeak, yes, you, you watched it. What did you think of it? Well, I thought it was one sick joke, the way that it was based around children, the way that the children were involved in the actual story. Why did you have to bring the story of the children into it? Tragically, it wasn't just youths being spooked. In Nottingham, April and Percy Denham were tuned in with their two sons, Gavin, age 14, and Martin, who, although 18 years old, he had a disability that left him with the mental age of around 13. This is pulled from a great article by Rebecca Woods at BBC News. The pair recalled how their elder son became more and more agitated throughout the broadcast. Quote, he sort of curled up while watching it. We asked if he was all right, but he seemed hypnotized by it. In the days that followed the broadcast, the Denims noticed a change in Martin. The radiators in their house had a habit of being noisy when warming up, and Martin suddenly asked to move bedrooms, though he never explained why. He seemed entranced by the talk of ghost, April remembers. He seemed a bit upset because things were happening at the time in the house that had been happening on Ghost Watch. The pipes were banging, Percy added. Five days after the broadcast, Martin was found hanging from a tree near his home in Bestwood Park. Oh, God. He had tied a length of plastic hose around his neck. A note found in his back pocket said, Please don't worry. If there are ghosts, I will be a ghost, and I will be with you always as a ghost. On December 23, 1992, in an article titled Parents Blame TV Program for Son's Death, Percy added, He was a very nervous lad. He thought there were ghosts in our home. In my own mind, I hold the BBC completely responsible for the death, but I won't be suing them. I can't afford it. Martin's death would be the most devastating event attached to Ghost Watch, but it wasn't until two years later that we would know the full scope. A paper published in the British Medical Journal presented a case that some children who had seen it that night were experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. This is case one of post-traumatic stress disorder in children after television programs. This boy had been frightened by Ghost Watch and he had refused to watch the ending. He subsequently expressed fear of ghosts, witches, and the dark, constantly talking about them and seeking reassurance. He suffered panic attacks, refused to go upstairs alone, and slept with the bedroom lights on. He had nightmares and daytime flashbacks and banged his head to remove thoughts of ghosts. He became increasingly clingy and was reluctant to go to school or to allow his mother to go out without him. Case 2. Immediately after watching Ghost Watch, this child, also described as a worrier, had complained of being frightened. He'd felt sick and cried easily and refused to go to his bedroom, complaining that someone was watching him there. He was consequently allowed to sleep in his parents' room, where he talked excessively about his fears. His parents were drawn into a discussion and had to reassure him repeatedly throughout the night. He was seen in an outpatient clinic. A behavioral program was established whereby he was encouraged to sleep in his own room with brief comforting when afraid and to ignore any discussion about the program. After three appointments at weekly intervals with telephone conversations in between, the situation has improved. He was in his own room and the whole family seemed more relaxed. A little better ending with that case, but 
Ghostwatch was never played again on the BBC, and it was borderline unacknowledged until its 10th year anniversary, when it was released by the British Film Institute on VHS and DVD. So it would be easy to focus exclusively on the negative aspects of this film. However, I should say, it's a pretty well-regarded and highly influential film to genre folks, both indulgers of horror and creators. I believe Blair Witch Project was directly influenced by Ghostwatch, and that film went oh, on to sure. influence an entire subgenre. I've read numerous nostalgic accounts fondly discussing their viewing experiences, and even before its official re-release, there were bootleg copies being sold via online forums and on eBay. I don't really know how to end this segment, but it did leave me with two thoughts. How this film could have been received if the viewers all knew it was fiction. Also, if it would at all be possible, would it fly for a major network to air something like this today? You know, I don't know, Kelly. I mean, they would air it, perhaps, but it would have to be more sensational than this. You think they would go for it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. In a weird way, it's a little bit like Baggins Dybbuk box. Do you think they would focus on considering consent this time around? Or, uh, or are people, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe everything is this now. The trick for somebody airing it now wouldn't be concern about the audience reaction. It would be concern about convincing the audience because no one believes anything anymore. Interesting. Like this and in many ways the alien autopsy video that I'm going to talk about relied heavily on truth still being a concept. And now truth isn't so much of a concept. It's so interpretive it feels like. Everybody has their own version of it. So in the absence of any objective truth that the general public can hang their hat on, it's hard to convince an audience to be afraid of something that is purported to be true. Yeah, but how many Denim families do we have that would try to sue someone after being spooked? None. I don't I, I don't think that there would be any room for that at this point. Oh, I don't know. I mean, know. I think it would have to go a lot further. You think about shows like all of the pranked no, shows. No, but those, those that... are participants on screen. I'm, I'm talking about something that convinces people at home. Right, but that's what I mean. If If somebody on screen is being pranked without their knowledge, and that doesn't result in lawsuits, I can't imagine that a third-party participant at home simply being impacted by what they're seeing. It just, I don't think there would be anything. We live in a new world, Byron. I don't know. I think we're a pretty sue-happy country. But, you know, just, just food for thought, I suppose, folks at home or at Panic Fest right now. Hi. How are you? Hello. Just a few years later, though, back in the old U.S. of A. Well, yeah. I'm going to talk about the air date first, and then we're going to back up and talk about the story behind it, because I do think that there are probably some direct connections to Ghostwatch Byron, believe it or not. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, so it's August 28th, 1995. Two days after my birthday. I was seven. Yeah. Wait. Oh, yeah, you were seven. See, I was... No, you were you? I think so. In 19, what did you say? how much older 95? I am you. Yeah. I was the ripe old age of 12. Okay. And this was my peak X-Files joy period. The Kelly watching the alien autopsy video is the most closely linked to the Kelly you get today. There was a period where I attempted to be a normal human, but this was a period where I returned in my 30s, I would say, to embracing my weirdness and 
I was peak weird in 1995. <laughs> you know me, Byron. My memory is horrible. I remember nothing. It's borderline problematic, okay? However, I remember very distinctly sitting in my father's studio. He's an artist, and he had a studio in our home. That's where I would sit and watch the X-Files with him. And this is peak X-Files era. Peak X-Files era, and it was the X-Files network to boot. Mm -hmm. The X-Files season premiere coming up next on Fox. Okay, so I'm sitting in his studio, and I've been listening to information about this because also he and I listen to Art Bell together. And Art Bell's been talking about this. We've been seeing previews, obviously, while we're watching X-Files for recent weeks. Some claim our government recovered alien bodies from a UFO crash site in 1947. Monday at 8, 7 Central, see the unbelievable footage and decide for yourself. Is this evidence of life on other planets? Alien autopsy, backdoor fiction. Then at 9, 8 Central, it's a Fox NFL primetime preview special with Hootie and the Blowfish. I am psyched out of my mind to see what's about to come on screen because I'm used to seeing the X-Files fictionalized accounts of all of this alien stuff, but I'm about to see something real and it's super cool. So unfortunately, the guy that was our host for the episode was a Star Trek guy who everybody else seems to know, Jonathan Frakes. Fact or fiction, you decide. Join Star Trek's Jonathan Frakes. Beyond belief. Apparently some bigwig on Star Trek. See, I, I never watched Star Trek. I didn't Star even watch Trek. Star Wars at this point, let alone Star Trek. I was more of a purist when it came to ufology. So he was talking about things. But they started with an interview of Jesse Marcel Jr. and other people involved with the actual Roswell incident. And this was all information that I knew. I was super excited because I'm like, wow. They're talking my language. These are things that happen. They're talking about the debris that crinkled up and then uncrinkled and was like perfectly flat. All of that is being discussed as though that's evidence for the veracity of the video that we're about to watch. Okay, because what we're about to see is a 17 minute video rumored to have been an autopsy of one of the aliens recovered from the Roswell crash. And that was the key element here that had me excited. And it was also the key element that once the film started rolling, the film of the autopsy itself, which was, you know, two thirds of the way through the show after multiple commercial breaks, because that's the way they did things, right? They had to keep everybody watching. Hmm. Also, just to note, Byron, at one point, 14% of America was watching the alien autopsy. Oh my God. So that's 11.7 million viewers, just 0.7 more than the Ghostwatch audience. But in the UK, yeah. that's far more impressive, let's be honest. Well, yeah, because the US were very distractible. Yeah. Independence Day is just a movie. Now see evidence that may prove aliens exist. What they saw was not from this world. Alien autopsy, fact or fiction, Sunday. They, they aired it three times. The first airing didn't get quite as many views. The second airing was a week later, and it got more views. And then they did a final airing of it in November of 95. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was 14% of America was watching it at that point. So people were really into it. The following program deals with controversial subjects. The theories, opinions, and beliefs expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. If what you are about to see is real, it's the most startling film footage in history. 
Although we remain skeptical, some experts believe this is authentic footage of an alien life form. Real or not, we must warn you. This appears to be an actual autopsy. And some of the footage you will see in the next hour is very gruesome. Stay with us as we put the question to you. Alien autopsy, fact or fiction? Well, all right, but the wraparound of this was the fact or fiction brand. That's how I first knew about Jonathan Frakes. I, I'm not a Star Trek guy either, but I was a big fan of his show, Fact or Fiction. Was that a Fox show? Because it was, I, yeah. Okay, okay, because I, yeah, I had nothing to do with it other than this. This was my... This is your introduction to Frakes. Yeah, my introduction and my sayonara as well, because I've never paid attention to anything else he's done since. As the film starts rolling, this 17-minute footage, black and white, I knew something was wrong immediately. Hmm. Immediately. I don't know that I could have pointed to what it was, but the way I'm going to try and describe it now, I was talking to Sam about it last night, obviously, and he said, well, obviously it was fake. It was an autopsy of an alien, Kelly. I was like, no, yeah, I was, was ready kid. to believe it. Like, Come on. I was the target audience for this video. I was the hook, line, and sinker. How did Sam put it? I was like bathing in a tub of Kool-Aid. I was ready. And I remember having a moment, I think I've described it this way on the show before. It was like my Annie secret decoder ring moment where I was oh, like, no. son of a bitch. You got Ovaltined. I did get Ovaltined and I was so angry. I was so angry. As I went back to research this, I didn't realize how many people believed it. A lot of people thought this was real. Some people, Byron, some people still think it's real. As I listened to really detailed descriptions of what was done to create this video, I realized that it wasn't anything in the video specifically that made me immediately react and say, nope, this is fake. You know, there was an issue where the eyes were not as big as they were supposed to be. Okay. I knew the eyes were bigger than that. These were bigger than a human eye, but they were not big enough. I also felt like the nose was too pronounced because the nose is, you know, not supposed to be big noses on these grays. You're right, because it's supposed to be an evolution of humans where we stop using those things so much. But the, the biggest thing, and Byron, I'm hoping that you, as somebody much more familiar with film videography and all of the technical aspects than I am, will be able to help with this. I looked it up last night. It's something called the soap opera effect. Hmm. Soap operas are apparently broadcast in a higher frame rate mm -hmm. than most things. And you're, when you're watching a movie or a regular television show, you're used to seeing things. I think it's like 24 frames per second yep, that's is right. the norm. Mm -hmm. Soap operas are often broadcast in 30 or even 60 frames per second. I don't know if that's something they still do. It's just the technology has changed so much with HD and Ultra HD 4K TVs. But... Right, but here's the thing. I've noticed with some of the fanciest new TVs that have really crazy high frame rates, mm -hmm. it it looks weird to me. I hate watching it. It's, it's, hate it's it. hyper real. I mean, I'm borderline ready to roll back to CRT. Like, Well, I was reading a ton about it, Byron, and I guess some of it, they're actually filling in frames that don't really exist. They're like yeah. duplicating and filling stuff in because a lot of stuff isn't filmed in that high of a frame rate. Uh -huh. In other cases... The problem can be that your brain's used to filling in, you know, and then when there's no space for your brain to fill in, it it's feels like a completely different viewing experience. I don't like it. Yeah. And this 
had that soap opera effect to it. Which, if it was filmed in 1957... Sorry, 47, year of the... uh, crash of course are you certain about that you of course yes would i'm 100 pre- oh are you fucking kidding me? of course you would be we did a whole episode on it and then also put it out on cassette tape available at shop.friday.com yeah believe me it was 47 and it it did not look right to me it wasn't grainy enough yeah the movement on screen was the soap opera effect that immediately made my brain go yeah this is not nope nope this is this is not real. This is fake. Now, in retrospect, a frame rate doesn't necessarily mean whether something's real or not because the way it's being broadcast isn't necessarily the way that it was filmed. But it's a red flag. It bothered me. And it, it bothers me to this day anytime. And I think part of it, you're going to laugh at me, but I really think part of the reason I hate that soap opera effect is because it triggers my PTSD about this specific incident. This was like the biggest gut punch I had gotten up to that point in my life. Yes, I, I led a very sheltered life. Well, I guess we'll have to get the old British Medical Journal to yeah. contact you and talk about it. Yeah, I feel like I should sue Ray Santilli. And you may say, who the hell is Ray who Santilli? Who the hell is well, Ray Santilli? Well, we're going to get into it. Byron, way back in, believe it or not, 1992, two British chaps got together hmm. and came up with an idea. It's one of those stories that is so convoluted and windy that I have to give an abbreviated version of it. So please forgive the fact that there are some nuanced details that are going to be left out, but I'm going to summarize it as best as I can, given the fact that I don't want to bore the hell out of people. It was an interesting time for film. People were really starting to get into uh, the idea of what can be faked and what can't be faked. A gentleman named Ray Santilli, who did videos of different sorts and Byron I don't know if you can I'm sure you can put a a picture of this guy in the show notes of this episode I don't think we can actually because it's panic fest okay well Ray Santilli was a director musician film producer whatever this was the thing he became known for but in 92 there was another gentleman by the name of Spiros Molaris director up and coming reached out to a number of people that were going to be at this film event asking if they needed work done Uh, he was hustling he was trying to get some gigs but Spiros reached out to Ray and said hey you know do you need any gigs and Ray said no but let's meet up at this event anyway let's get together Spiros and Ray got together and started chatting and Ray showed Spiros this footage supposedly an alien autopsy and immediately Spiros is like, this is bullshit. What, what is this? Mm-hmm. Ray was like, what do you mean? No, this is real. And Spiros gave him all the technical reasons for why it was not real. And he was like, sad Gus. Oh, geez. I was really hoping we could do something with this. They kind of chatted a bit more and Spiros left and called one of his buddies. And on the phone, they came up with this idea like, well, it's kind of a cool idea, though. People are really into the alien thing right now. What if we remade it in a way that could be believed? That didn't look stupid and bad. Right. So believe it or not, the original version, which if you look it up online, it's the tent footage, okay? The tent footage was way worse than what aired 
on Fox. Where did they release the tent footage at? It hasn't technically been released because this was in Ray Santilli's possession. All right. So Spiros, after he gets off the phone with his friend, calls Ray back and says, hey, how about this idea? And again, this is according to Spiros, because there are lots of different perspectives on how this story evolved. But after listening to all of them, the only one that I consider viable is Spiros's, because Santilli's changed his mind a billion times and is totally a con man. And everybody else involved was only given pieces of the puzzle. I think Spiros is speaking the truth, or at least the closest thing to the truth. So he calls up Ray and he says, what if we do this? I'm a magician. Literally, Spiros is a magician. He's been practicing magic his whole life. That's like his oh, no. fun hobby thing. But he's, he's, what is the registered group of magicians? What the, what are they? I can't even remember. But like the Royal Association of Illusionists is what I'm going to call it. That's okay. nowhere near the name. But he's, he's part of that group. Like he has done magic for a long time. And you can listen to him in a couple of interviews talk about what he loves about magic and that it's all about misdirection and the way that he made this story evolve was all tied to his background as a magician. But he had this idea with Ray. He said, what if we recreate this? We make it really good. I make it believable. I can make it believable. And then after everybody goes into a frenzy over it, where we make our money is with a documentary, kind of like The Masked Magician, okay, saying this is how we did it. There, was it was it called the Masked Magician? Yeah, the, the it's show, the show where... that magicians around the globe don't want you to see. Yeah. The Masked Magician is back, out of hiding, daring to expose the world's most highly guarded secrets. You'll find out how they perform. The guy that ended up getting death threats that talked about how different magic tricks were done. What Spiros is saying is, let's do this, and then let's explain to people how we did it, because. That's that's what people are really going to want to see. Let's let this out for free. And then once people work up a frenzy about it, where we will make our buck is with that documentary that we air showing how we did all of it. That's how they capitalize on it. Interesting. Right. And so this was Spiros' plan from the get-go. He wasn't intending to permanently trick anyone. It was all part of, hey, look at this cool magic trick in the form of a film about a topic that people are going batshit over right now. And now let's back up and let me show you how easy it is to fool you guys. You need to be more careful. This is how it was done. So he gets to work. He and his girlfriend do just insane amounts of research because one of the big things that they're trying to overcome, they are in England. This is supposed to have been filmed in America. His girlfriend at the time had access to all of these medical libraries, and she started researching for him how autopsies were performed in America in 1947, because it was very different from how they were performed in England in 1947. He starts looking into all of the different elements in this footage that need to be recreated in a way that looks authentic. Looking at the tent footage, he's basically fixing all the shit that was wrong with that. And this guy is a bit of like a, I mean, not a Stanley Kubrick, but like the attention to detail is pretty crazy. Listen to this, Byron. You'll appreciate this. Because the electrical hertz rate in America is different than England, mm -hmm. 50 in America, 50 hertz and 60 hertz in England, he sped up the footage or cut footage out to make the lights flicker Correctly. Oh, wow. He had fake electrical outlets built, so it was not a British electrical outlet. It was a... Smiley face American, American one. Okay. 
he had a clock that had been actually made in the 40s because the one in the original tent footage was from like the 70s. He went and got actual medical examiner clothing from the 40s. Like this guy. And you couldn't just go to Etsy and like look up this stuff. No, they, they track stuff down. But this was the magician in him, right? Like he knew that part of fooling everybody was going to be convincing them with all of this footage. And here was the most genius part of all of it. Because Byron, one thing that even as a 12 year old watching this show, I couldn't understand this really high up dude for Kodak got on the Fox show and said, yeah, this footage is authentic. It would make much sense to think that, yes, this film could have been shot in the late 40s, early 50s. Paolo Kerke Uze is senior curator of motion pictures at Eastman House in Rochester, New York. I was like, what the fuck? No, it's not. There's no way it is. Was he a real is Kodak guy? Real? Was he? And he was really from Kodak. Yeah. Oh, wow. So listen to what Spiros did. Spiros and Centilli, after they have everything filmed, okay, they go to Kodak. Did they get stock from the era? No, no, no. Oh, God, this it's so brilliant, Byron. Okay, so Spiros, while filming, was able to track down an actual canister of film from the 1940s from Roswell from a baseball game, okay? Okay. The first few frames of it are the camera at nighttime, like walking up steps into the baseball stadium. Yeah. Can't tell what the hell it is. Like, if it goes a little bit further... You, it goes into the locker room and you can see, like, the guys, the baseball guys, the players. <laughs> the baseball boys. The baseball guys, the yeah. fellas, okay? But up until that point, it's just like a random dark stairway. Wow, okay. And so he used that footage. The first handful of frames on this reel were Kodak film from 1947. And he knew that it had the right stamps on it because they changed the stamps each year so that they can identify what year it was made. He and Centilli went to the Kodak people and said, hey, can you, we got this from this retired army videographer in America, and we need to see if this is actually real. Of course, the Kodak guy said, we'll leave it with me overnight. And they're like, well, no, we can't leave it with you. It's way too valuable. But you can handle this, and you can take some images. And so he, using all of his magician-like talents, pulls the reel out unreels it far enough that he can see the alien like in the actual little cells mm -hmm. but then rolls it back up and says okay this part isn't going to get damaged so you can you can cut a couple of these off and use these and it was the original shit from 47 so when he verified it he was simply verifying those first few cells which were indeed kodak film from 1947 in roswell in roswell Oh, wow. Brilliant. That's really smart. Fucking brilliant. Yeah. But when you hear how he did all of it, it's all so rooted in the same concepts of magic. It's all sleight of hand or misdirection. misdirection. And he did a brilliant job, aside from the brilliant Kelly being able to say, yeah, there's no way this is real. Otherwise, he did a really good job. Children have different intuition, you know? Yeah, and my intuition was always great. But here's, here's what happened. Poor Spiros, while he thinks they're still in line with this original plan... Centilli's going behind his back and slinging this footage to people all over the world, making a bunch of money off of it. Because the plan had been, we're going to release this for free. We're going to get as many places to play it as possible because it's real footage. Then we're going to make all of our bank on the dock. Spiros basically got nothing. Centilli was impatient. He wanted to get that bag. He was a hustler and he was a, a bit of a, an asshole. 
But the problem is Spiros had no idea that he was even on this different kick. He is playing into this full story. He hands over all of the evidence, essentially, when they're done filming. Like, they apparently dismembered the body, put it in different garbage places across London so that it couldn't be reassembled. Mm -hmm. All the molds, everything that was used was deconstructed, erased, and given to Centilli so that there would be no evidence of it. Because Spiros believed that everybody was in on this plan. And then when things unraveled and it became clear that Centilli had been making money, wasn't sharing it, shit kind of started to fall apart. And Spiros realized that there wasn't a whole lot he could do about it, which really sucked. Now, the body itself is pretty fascinating. I really did think the head needed to be bigger and I thought the eyes needed the to be bigger. Little, but it was yeah, yeah. it was fine. And a lot of people will talk about, even in the Fox special or fact or fiction gig, when the scalpel cuts the alien skin, it bleeds pretty well. But again, special effects and definitely magician-rooted beliefs. Stan Winston was interviewed on the Fox special. They like filmed him watching the footage and he was talking about how impressive it was. It's been done today to look like it was done then, there would be a many, many, multiple thousands of dollars. I understand even if it wasn't made to look, period. I mean, just to do this properly would be really... Be very expensive. And my hat's off to the people who created it or to that poor alien that's dead on the (laughs) table. I mean, it's better than the Patterson-Gimlin footage, I suppose. Well, you know... We'll Uh-oh. bounce back to that. The Patterson-Gimlin footage, actually, you cannot disprove that the way that you can disprove this. It's very, very interesting. I know. We've talked about it so much. I know, I know, I know. But the actual body was created by a really, really skilled sculptor. Basically, Centilli scared all of the people involved with it to the point that nobody was willing to speak up. And Spiros talked to John Humphreys, the sculptor, to try and get him to say, like, tell people you made this. He eventually acquiesced, but decided to go with the backstory that Centilli created. So once Centilli was found out, basically once Spiros made this public knowledge and said, yeah, this guy completely screwed me over. This was all fake. My intent was not to fake people out. My intent was to show people how they could be faked out and explain everything about how we did it. And he's gone on record multiple times going through all of the specific details of how they made it work. And it's fascinating to listen to. But Humphreys was a little bit scared of Centilli. And so when all of this news came out, Centilli said, all right, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, it was fake, but it wasn't really fake. It was just a recreation. Oh, God. Because there was footage. And I did get that footage from the cameraman in 1992. That footage was just like disintegrated and looked really, really bad. So we had to recreate it. And so this this was just a recreation. He even went so far, Byron, as to use the analogy that it's exactly like the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa today looks nothing like it did originally because it's been messed with so much. Okay, well, horrible comparison because the Mona Lisa is still the Mona Lisa. It's literally the same canvas, the same yeah, under, thing. Underneath the repairs, it's still the Mona Lisa. Right. This was, according to him a complete recreation of something he swears was real. And Byron, I know that this isn't great because we can't have show notes, but I did send you an image that he finally released after a number of years, you know, saying, no, 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 here's a slide from the original 
Footage. Oh, it sounds like he's trying really hard to continue this legacy. He know? is because he went on 10 years after the fact and made a movie in England with a couple of, I don't know, they were apparently popular comedic dudes that was all about this story. Hey, he found the footage and then it fell apart. So he had to recreate it. It sounds a little bit like, um, what's the movie about recreating the moon? The moon? Landing. Oh, directed by Matt Matt Johnson. Yeah. Operation Avalanche. Yes, yeah. very much like Operation Avalanche, except very comedic. Okay, like overtly funny. I don't know if you're aware of the cast of this thing. We're talking about 2006's Alien Autopsy. Yes, Johnny yes. Campbell. It's got a. It's got Bill Pullman and Harry Dean Stanton in it. Yep, Harry Dean played, I think, some type of military dude yeah. associated with it. I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty big time. But uh... yeah, yeah, agreed. Of course, that pissed Spiros off even more because Centilli came to him before that and said, hey, we're going to make this movie. Great. So we're finally going to make the documentary and make some money. Centilli says to Spiros, no, no, we're just going to do it for free. It's just for a bit of fun. Come on, man. And Spiros is like, no, I am so underwater in this project and I'm still pissed off at you because you lied to me. You sold it all over the place. No, I want money for this. Let's not do this project. We're not going to do something for free. So they went on and they did it without him. <laughs> There's no way that they did the, the Fox Factor Fiction for free, right? Spiros did. God damn it. Right? I feel really bad for Spiros in all of this because of the way that he has explained things and obviously the lengths he went to. And he was counting on, I mean, even you listen to the comment on the Fox special from Stan Winston We'd hire whoever this is. He's like, I'm going to get amazing jobs from this because I did a really good job. It's, he reminds me of you, Byron, like crazy attention to detail, worked his ass off, just wanted to be recognized for it. So in the middle of all of this hullabaloo with stupid Santilli, he says, well, you know what? I'm going to register my film at the Library of Congress. So at least it's on record. He goes to the Library of Congress and Santilli has registered it as a 1947 authentic video. And he has to engage in this battle with the Library of Congress who tells him like, no, 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 we're not proactive, we're reactive. So if you want to prove that you actually own this material, you need to send us evidence of that. And he's struggling like crazy because he's given all of it over. But luckily he held on to a few pieces of evidence regarding the debris footage that was inserted into the alien autopsy video. And this debris footage shows these panels that were supposedly removed from the craft that have six finger handprint holdings for them where like apparently that's how you could control the ship, right? Mm -hmm. Spiros talks about why they created them like that and how it was supposed to wrap around to the six fingers on the body and blah, 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 blah. But he had some evidence pertaining to that and he had a couple other little receipts and things that he was able to assemble. Finally got Library of Congress to say, okay, yeah, 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 we believe you. You can register your film as, you know, whatever, mockumentary, whatever you want to call it from 1995. But that 1947 film is still going to stand as a separate registration in the Library of Congress unless you can sue Centilli and prove in court he really didn't do that, you know, that it wasn't real to begin with. Spurs doesn't have the money to do that. So now there are two registrations in the Library of Congress. One for the hoax and one for the belief that it is still real, which is just ridiculous What a mess. Me. What a... Yeah. This so, is just a silly segment on Fox from the 90s. Why is this... Yeah. And 
exactly the opposite of what happened with Ghostwatch, Byron. And I think this is because America at this point was not super scared of aliens. You know, if if you watch the X Files, it's the government that's scary. It's not the aliens. Like the they abduct smoking, some people, man. and things yeah. happen that we wouldn't want to have happen to us. But they certainly aren't these big scary monsters that are coming here to kill us. All right. So people did not have a crazy reaction to it. In fact, Robert Kiviat, who did the interviews for the special on Fox, wrote the opening to a book that was written by probably the best researcher, no, definitely the best researcher on this whole situation, a guy named Philip Mantle, who is British. We're we're hanging out in the UK tonight, Byron. In the foreword to this book, Robert Kiviat said the following, which I think really captures something positive to come out of this. No matter what Centilli's footage actually showed, the Fox Network's alien autopsy programs demonstrated that when or if a real alien is ever aired on national television, our society will take this momentous occasion in stride and it will not cause panic in the streets or make us question our religion and other long-cherished beliefs. We will continue to go to work, school, or place of worship and live our lives just as before. But knowing we are not alone in the universe will change our perceptions of ourselves in many ways and hopefully bring humanity closer together once and for all. Okay, which is kind of like Reagan's comment on aliens. But okay. this is the weird juxtaposition with this story, Byron. On the other side of the camera, on America's side of the camera, there wasn't a panic about this. But behind the scenes, in the government, there was a really? bit a bit of a panic. Oh, no. Not a wild panic, but a bit of a, a panic. And this all came to light in 2019. After the death of Edgar Mitchell, some of the memos and pieces of evidence in his personal collection were circulating, and one of them came into the possession of a scientist employed by one of our good friends. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, Bob Bigelow. Uh, No, he's not a friend of the show, but he's our good friend because we've talked about him a lot. Future friend of the show. Yeah, future friend of the show. There you go. Time is a flat circle. Hmm. Bob starts investigating this memo. And in this memo, it's 11 pages, involving a CIA scientist by the name of Kit Green. Now, Kit Green was a senior division analyst for the neurosciences at CIA. And he was very interested in aliens, in UFOs, and was briefed multiple times about an alien autopsy film made using one of the crashed bodies at Roswell. This just blew my mind because I didn't discover this until I was doing research for this program, Byron. And long ago, I had written this entire thing off as nothing but bullshit. Yeah. But I start looking into this and I realize stupid Centilli's story about there being real footage could not be real. There's no way. But then comes Kit Green, who was a very real person and a very real scientist for a very real CIA who said, yeah, I saw real footage. The way the story was reported initially in 2019, you know, three years ago, was, yep, he said he saw the video and it was the same as the video that aired on Fox News. Not Fox News. <laughs> I mean, it was the listen, same I've the video seen some stuff on Tucker, too. Yeah, well, oh my gosh, I can't. Tucker's really into aliens these days. I, I hate it. Yeah, I hate it. really unfortunate. I hate it so much. Okay. It's the worst thing to happen to UFOs since Alex Jones. 
In 2019, when the story originally aired, everything like The Sun, okay, in the UK was quoting Kit Green, the scientist, as saying, oh, yeah, 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 what aired in 1995 on Fox, that's what I saw. Great newspaper, keeps coming up. Super good. Really reliable stuff. The problem is that isn't at all what he said. Hmm. Here's the way it went down. Kit left the CIA, but then was called into the Pentagon multiple times to view actual footage. And what Kit said was the footage was consistent with the cadaver scene in the 1995 video. Okay, so not that it was the same. He did not see video that he said that's the video that aired in 1995. He said the footage was consistent. Now, these briefings took place long before Centillion Spiros hatched this plan. The first briefing happened in 1981. The second briefing happened in 87 or 88. And then the third briefing happened in 91 or 92. And what's interesting about the timing there is that third briefing does coincide with when Dan Santilli said he got the quote-unquote real footage. Hmm. Now, I can't imagine that this footage would have been in the possession of some random 80-year-old army dude, right? Like, why would he still have that? That doesn't make sense. But the timing is odd. The timing, in fact, is so odd that a frenzy of sorts has ensued in UFO circles, believing that the government was actually afraid that the real footage was going to leak in 91 or 92. Centilli was just this moron. Let's call him something akin to a Southern California pop punk band frontman. Okay. Interesting. They saw an opportunity to get out in front of a possible leak of the real footage. Yeah. By telling this guy, look what we got. You can't say that we showed it to you. You got to come up with another story. You got to say that some army dude showed this to you, but we're going to show you this real footage. You're going to reproduce it and we'll let you make make money off of it. Run with it. And Centilli succeeded in creating such a, a ridiculous shit show around it that no one will ever believe that there was an original alien autopsy. No one will ever believe that he saw an original alien autopsy. But this memo from Kit Green that discusses these three briefings appears to be very real. I mean, I I don't love convoluted conspiracy theories and I'm, I don't normally jump on board with like these disinformation campaign things. I don't think that Centilli was a willing disinformation agent. And I certainly don't think Spiros was. I think Spiros was just brought on by Centilli. He really did the whole thing. He and Sean Humphreys, who did the body. But he didn't know that this was what was going on. The result was a really great artist worked his ass off, got nothing for it. A complete con man did exactly what the government wanted him to do and made a shitload of money doing it. Although definitely has a really crummy reputation as a result. And a little kid in Montana in 1995 was really pissed off that this was the best that could be produced to prove aliens existed. And as it turns out, maybe it wasn't the best that could be produced. It was protecting the real thing. Hmm. I don't know how you guys come down on the side of disinformation agent versus full hoax versus I'm sure there's somebody out there that still thinks that this thing is real. I promise you the footage that aired on Fox was not real. I I promise all of you. Sounds like disinformation, folks. I know. I know. I highly recommend everybody look up this memo, the Kit Green memo, because it talks about 
the pathology reports from this autopsy, different pieces of tissue that were held at Walter Reed. Uh, there's some really interesting bits to it, and I think there's a lot more to be had with that line of inquiry than there is with the Centilli line of inquiry. Wish there was some way to get Spiros some money because he's really good at what he did. He's supposedly coming out with a book. He keeps talking about that. I, I listened to some interviews as recently as last year. Mm. He's very eloquent. You know, again, the British accent doesn't hurt. But I also am quite sure he made no money last year in May when there was an NFT up for sale. Yeah. And if you look at the NFT regarding the alien autopsy video, it includes this picture that is supposedly of the real deal. The original. Yeah, it was called uh, an NFT that, that purported, said it was made from the original 1947 alien autopsy yeah. film. The opening bid was a million. 450 Ethereum when the story came out in May of 2021. I hate Ethereum. It's such a, oh my God, anyhow. <sighs> yeah, I don't know if it's sold. I also don't know how much it's uh, sold for, but you know what? I don't care. <laughs> Really you care. could well, it, there was a place where you could bid. It was being sold on Rarible. I'm sure that it sold at this point. Yeah, this item has been temporarily blocked from, from public, public access. access. All right, interesting, interesting, hmm. interesting. They already made the the 2006 movie, but for some reason, this whole story feels like the Coen Brothers could have handled it way better. Oh yeah, it's a very Men Who Stare at Goats style story that would be really fun to see an unpacking of. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because I just want Spiros to get employed by something that will get him money regarding this situation because he really does deserve it. The lengths that he went to and his attention to detail was the only reason that it wasn't immediately dismissed as bullshit by everyone. Now, not everybody could be as smart as I was at age 12, right? Hmm. But it convinced a lot of people at the time. And that was only because of his work. Well, and John Humphreys. Again, I do think he deserves some pretty significant credit. Humphreys, unfortunately, like I said, went the way of Centilli and said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was led to believe that it was based on real footage. And I saw the real footage. Yep, I saw the real footage. Sure did. Looks just like this. I mean, hopefully they get the eventual credit and respect that they uh, deserve, you know, like Stephen Volk and the Ghostwatch team did 10 years after that whole debacle. You know, they found the audience and the love that they deserve. Hopefully the folks behind Alien Autopsy get the same at some point. My interesting takeaway from this, by is America is more okay with aliens than they used to be. Yeah. This is the same mentality that has kept things from unraveling at the hands of recent reports, even recent reports from the Pentagon that there has been significant bodily harm caused to witnesses of UFOs. I did read that. That even hasn't made people run around in the streets screaming. Yeah. America, I don't know, we're just trashy enough <laughs> that we're willing to believe some crazy things without it rocking our world. Yeah. I love that about us. I don't love our gullibility, and I don't love that artists don't get their due credit. And if you're fans of the Blair Witch Project, found footage in general, or, you know, that scene in Paranormal Activity where the sheets get ripped off of uh, oh God. our lead there. Every time. Check out Ghostwatch. And first of all, Kelly, thank you so much for that report. Thank you for your report, Byron. And thank you guys so much uh, for uh, hanging out with us again this year. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, we release new episodes every week, Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. 
or to check out Friday.com for all things uh, frightening. Super frightening. Super fabulous. Kelly, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Kelly Friday. You can email me, Kelly at Friday.com, especially if you have any stories of scaries or UFOs, anything weird. I want to hear it. Yeah, in the meantime, I'm going to be doing some more research on Montauk. And I'm at Byron McCoy on Twitter and Instagram. Byron at Friday.com is my email address. And until, I guess, next Panic Fest or next time you find us somewhere else on the internet, uh, I'm Byron. I'm Kelly. Enjoy the rest of your fest. Stay skeptical. Can you believe I'm saying that? And stay scared. been listening to an audio wool original produced by byron mccoy theme music provided by cemeteries for more programs like this visit audiowool.co